The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The Neurohumanities Networking Group. I'm Eve Patton. I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is hosting the series. And I'm really pleased to be introducing this session, which is looking again at interdisciplinarity. And uh, as this audience will know, interdisciplinarity is right at the heart of the Hub's guiding philosophy. Uh, and uh, the series has been dedicated to exploring how we bring creativity and literature into contiguity with neurology. Uh, Emily Dickinson, as many of you know, famously wrote that the brain is wider than the sky. Uh, so we're asking how we reflect on that tremendous reach and that width of the brain as it spans the creative arts, literary disciplines uh, and uh, creativity more generally understood. Uh, as those of you who've joined the earlier panels will know, the um, Networking group uh, for the neurohumanities was set up for postgraduates who are engaged or who are interested in interdisciplinary research across this field and who want to expand their network and exchange ideas. Uh, so I think it's a really important step forward in advancing pioneering work that's going on in the neurohumanities in Trinity. Uh, the venture is supported by the Postgraduate Wellbeing and Community Fund, and I think they'll already be pleased to see that this is money very well spent. Uh, it's also supported, of course, by Professor Mani Ramaswamy, who's director of Trinity's Institute of Neurosciences. Uh, Mani gave a talk, I think the second uh, event in this series, which is now podcast, uh, and it was uh, not only a sparkling overview of the establishment of neurohumanities in Trinity with funding from the Wellcome Trust, but it was also, I think, a really important beginning uh, on, on or consideration of the beginnings of how interdisciplinarity is working in this area. And I was very gratified to hear Manny talk about respecting what he described as the rigor of our respective disciplinary practices while at the same time building this key interface between the disciplines. So the speakers today are going to consider this theme uh, in more detail and the discussion will be introduced to you very shortly by the organizers. So now let me do the pleasant task of introducing our two series organizers, uh, Amelia McConville uh, and Fiona Stout. Uh, Amelia is a PhD student in the School of English, uh, working with the association of the Institute, uh, working in association rather with the Institute of Neuroscience. Uh, and uh, Amelia is conducting groundbreaking interdisciplinary research on visual poetry and poetics with the neurohumanities, right since her uh, undergraduate years studying English and philosophy at Trinity. Amelia has been fascinated by the overlap of art and science. Uh, I've heard her speak on this topic several times now, uh, and I'm absolutely fascinated by what she brings to the reading of literary texts from the perspective of visual and neurological processes. Uh, and we're also, of course, joined by our second organizer who has uh, appeared on screen, Fiona Stout. 
Uh, Fiona is from the School of Creative Arts in Trinity, and she's currently working on an MLIT uh, looking at interdisciplinary research on the interconnective soft tissue matrix known as fascia, and she's working on fluidity in the actor body. So this is really groundbreaking work on the relationship between neuroscience and physiology. Uh, Fiona came to Ireland from California back in 2014 and did uh, a BA in acting from the Lehrer Academy in 2017, but she is also certified as a yoga teacher. Uh, and many of you, I hope, will have enjoyed the previous session that she ran in this series, which was a movement workshop, uh, an interactive movement workshop, uh, and a very beneficial workshop indeed for those of us who are or who have been for the past year and a half very desk bound indeed. So I would like to uh, thank Amelia and Fiona once again for this wonderful series and hand over to them and they're going to introduce the speakers and chair this session. Absolutely, thank you so much for that very thoughtful and in-depth um, introduction Eve. I actually don't have to do as much <laughs> as I had a uh, plan to do but just quickly wanted to again touch on our our first session um, where we did have a meet and greet where we informally introduced our various interdisciplinary research um, and our experiences of navigating interdisciplinarity at Trinity um, to date. Uh, we also touched on the language uh, and the importance of language in bridge building and a debate emerged naturally and very interestingly about what it means sometimes to be considered a soft versus a hard science and the effects that such labels can sometimes have on conversations that are meant to connect and bridge disciplines. Um, in our second, um, as Eve has just wonderfully said, we did hear from Manny Ramaswamy um, and he mentioned that it is much uh, more likely to be able to form an interdisciplinary research degree under humanities umbrella than it is under a scientific uh, based umbrella, which led then into my own functional fascia and fluidity workshop. Uh, we're hoping to keep this uh, sort of structure for the next time that we host our series. So we'll have the informal chat, we'll have a lecture with a talk back, we'll have a functional workshop, and then we'll have an interdisciplinary interdisciplinary panel uh, where we have three speakers, uh, which Amelia will now introduce, uh, talking about some of these themes that have naturally emerged through the first three and hopefully uh, generating a lot of fuel for future conversation. So I'm very pleased to hand this off to Amelia. Um, thanks so much, Fiona, and um, I'll be brief because I know we want to get started uh, with our first, um, our first of, of our three speakers who are so delighted could join us uh, this afternoon. So yeah, just just to reiterate again, a big thank you to the hub, to Francesca and Aoife who've helped us so much uh, with the series setting up. Thank you to Eve for the lovely um, uh, introduction. Uh, we also just want to reiterate again that uh, we're very grateful to the Postgraduate Wellbeing and Community Fund for funding the series and getting us off the ground. Um, thank you to Manny for supporting us as well. Um, I'm going to introduce our three speakers um, here. We're going to get started um, on our discussion. So each of our speakers is going to talk for about uh, between eight and ten minutes um, on their work. Um, and then we're going to open it up to um, a Q&A um, discussion. So a reminder that you can listen back to the previous um, uh, uh, talks in the series um, on uh, SoundCloud or Spotify. You can just check the, the, the uh, hub on either of those platforms to listen back. And we'll be releasing this as a podcast. And we're also live on the hub Facebook page at the moment, um, just in case you want to link it to anybody who might not have gotten a Zoom link. Um, just a reminder to use the Q&A as the uh, conversations um, are flowing. We'll be opening it up once um, our three speakers have actually had the chance to, to present. We'll be 
be going through audience questions. But if a comment or a question occurs to you during any of the presentations, we'd encourage you to um, post it uh, during and myself and Fiona will then mediate those questions um, when we open it up to the wider discussion. Um, so yeah, I'm going to introduce all three of our speakers um, and uh, in the order in which they're going to present and then I'll hand over. Um, so yeah, we're really delighted to have um, Dr. Darren Wallace with us. So Darren is the project ma manager of Shape ID, which is an EU funded project addressing the challenge of improving interdisciplinary cooperation between the arts, humanities and social sciences and STEM subjects um, and other disciplines. So Shape ID recently launched a toolkit, which we'll be hearing about from Darren uh, and recommendations to guide European policymakers, funders, universities and researchers in achieving successful pathways to interdisciplinary integration between arts, humanities and social sciences and other sciences, as well as within um, arts and humanities and social science disciplines. Um, so then we're going to hear from um, Dr. Claire Kelly. So um, Claire is an Usher Assistant Professor of Functional Neuroimaging working at Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience with a joint appointment in the School of Psychology and Department of Psychiatry at the School of Medicine. Um, at TCD, her lab continues to forge a research mission aimed at elucidating the neurodevelopmental basis of psychiatric disorders through the application and refinement of frontier functional and structuring neuroimaging methods. Her research vision is to trace the roots of mental health difficulties in the developing brain so that we can identify at-risk individuals at the earliest possible point and intervene to divert their de developmental trajectory away from illness towards health. Um, Dr. Kelly recently also contributed to a neurohumanities focused issue of the journal Neuron, which we've referenced before in the series. So hopefully we'll hear a little bit more about that article um, that Claire has uh, written. And then finally, we're delighted to welcome Professor Shane O'Mara. Um, so uh, Shane is Professor of Experimental Brain Research in Trinity. Uh, it is a Principal Investigator in the Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience and a member of the academic staff of the School of Psychology. His research focuses on the relations between cognition, synaptic plasticity and behaviour in the context of brain ageing and depression. And his neurohumanities relevant interests have recently focused on topics as diverse as torture, walking and collective memory and collective cognition with a focus on cultures and nations. Um, so thank you so much to our three speakers for being here and I'll hand over to Darren to start us off. Thanks Amelia. Um, so I'm going to share some slides um, and uh, can I? Yes. Um, I'm going to share some slides um, because I'm going to provide um, sort of a, a more general overview of uh, the challenges of interdisciplinarity and getting started with interdisciplinary research. Um, so I work, um, thanks very much, first of all, Amelia and Fiona for inviting me and congratulations on this really exciting initiative. It's great to see something like this happening in Trinity. Um, so um, uh, as Amelia said, I'm the project manager of Shape ID, which is a Horizon 2020 project uh, addressing the challenge of integrating the arts, humanities and social sciences into inter and transdisciplinary research. Uh, so I'll briefly introduce the project. Uh, then I'll discuss some sort of overview concepts coming out of the project uh, results, um, looking at how inter- and transdisciplinarity are understood, some general principles for good collaboration, and some of the supports needed. Um, and then I'll introduce a, shape, a toolkit that Shape ID has just produced, which aims to support those interested in developing their understanding and ability to undertake inter- and transdisciplinary research. So a brief overview of the project first. Um, it's led by Jane Olmeyer here at the Trinity Longroom Hub with five partners across Europe. And over the past two and a half years, we've conducted academic and policy literature reviews, a survey interviews. We've held six workshops across Europe with expert stakeholders uh, to draw on the experience and knowledge of experts and practitioner, practitioners of inter and transdisciplinary research, as well as funders and policymakers. And then we've worked collaboratively with our international expert panel to synthesize our findings into preconditions, recommendations, and policy briefs. 
And the final project output is the toolkit that I'll discuss uh, later in this presentation, which consists of curated resources and guidelines to help different groups undertake or support inter- and transdisciplinary research. So I'll just begin with a brief look at terminology because there's often confusion and uh, most of the time if I present um, without this slide, people ask me how, how we define um, these terms in the project. So there's a lot of terms at play, disciplinary, multidisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity. Um, and the Shape ID literature review has shown that there's, there's no single ideal definition. Understandings vary historically and they vary across different communities, um, disciplinary communities as well as, uh, as, well as countries. Um, but there's a report by the League of European Research Universities from 2016 that provides what I think is a very helpful working understanding in terms of uh, seeing this on a spectrum from a focus on disciplines as repositories of knowledge and practice uh, to a focus on problems that might require knowledge from within, across and beyond disciplines uh, to, to address them successfully. So multidisciplinarity usually refers to research that takes place uh, kind of in parallel maybe or in sequence, but it doesn't necessarily require integration or any sort of transformation of disciplinary knowledges. It could just involve bringing a range of different perspectives or approaches to bear on uh, a similar um, topic or question. Um, so it involves cooperation, but not necessarily uh, deep integration or collaboration. Then interdisciplinarity usually means some level of integration takes place. Um, so that requires greater interaction and inter interdependence. Um, and that can take place at the level of data, methods, concepts, theories, techniques, tools, lots of different areas. Um, and it can be either to advance understanding or to address the collective challenge, could be both, of course. Um, but the point I suppose is that the outcome is more than the sum of the individual disciplines and it's something that neither could have produced alone. Um, and then transdisciplinarity. Um, usually these days um, it's referred to, it's, it's understood as interdisciplinary research uh, plus, other, plus the involvement of other sectors. So civil society or enterprise, for example. And there tends to be an emphasis on addressing complex problems. And this is how the OECD defined it in a recent report, for example. So within that, there's many different ways that um, uh, interdisciplinary research can vary. So in addition to the level of integration uh, just discussed, um, projects can differ in how transformative they are, how much novelty is produced, how much change the participating disciplines might undergo as a result of the collaboration, um, and their interaction with other methods, concepts, theories. So how much the integration is sort of changes the, the, the home disciplines. Um, in addition to that, there's variations in, um, in how partners relate or how, how partners are configured in a project. So collaborations can take place between disciplines that, for example, that share or that have very different objects of study, methods, worldviews, and modes of knowledge production. And traveling further requires more work and takes longer to navigate the distances between disciplines or sectors. Um, so it's important to factor that in. Um, the scale of collaboration is another variable. Individuals can borrow and incorporate insights from other disciplines without necessarily actively consulting researchers in other disciplines. Um, where there is collaboration, it can range from a two-partner collaboration, for example, just writing a paper together, um, right up to large-scale, multi-partner, multi-sectoral collaborative research projects. And then finally, the, the relationships between partners can vary greatly as well, from asymmetrical, asymmetrical relationships in which some partners or disciplines are setting the agenda with others playing subordinate or minor or tokenistic roles, um, such as uh, say public engagement work or just doing some kind of basic app development or statistical analysis where essentially you don't um, extend um, your own discipline um, through the work and the collaboration. Um, so ranging from that up to more equal relationships where partners co-create jointly uh, both the understanding and the approach to the problem 
uh, and work to kind of um, develop a shared language and try to align goals um, across the disciplines and more bridging work involved. So based on uh, the ShapeID workshop reports, um, I just wanted to highlight a few features of, you know, of good collaborative research based on the experiences of people who've, who've done it. So trust and mutual respect um, are essential foundations of good collaboration and all partners should benefit from the collaboration. And then it takes time to build these relationships that needs to be factored in in terms of resources and long-term planning. Joint problem framing is critical. So all partners need to work together from the start, ideally, to explore a problem and agree an approach if you want to avoid tokenism and build uh, more mutually satisfying collaborations. And then underpinning all of this, of course, is the need for ongoing communication to address and overcome any misunderstandings that might arise. So we synthesized the project findings, the results of the literature review surveys and workshops uh, to try to identify the main preconditions for successful inter and transdisciplinary research. And this covers in a number of different areas. Um, at the level of research policy and funding, we need long-term commitment to including the arts, humanities and social sciences in challenge-led research and capacity building for greater integration. We need more arts, humanities and social sciences involvement in color design and in program evaluation and proposal evaluation. And we need a range of funding instruments, including seed funding to support network and capacity building right up to larger scale uh, collaborative research funding. And higher education institutions need to make long-term commitments too to culture change and capacity building. And this takes time. Um, so this includes um, built, having more inter and transdisciplinary modules and programs from undergraduate education on, revising hiring promotion and staff evaluation procedures to ensure interdisciplinary career paths are viable for researchers because they're known to be risky, more risky than uh, disciplinary research career paths, which are already challenging for young researchers these days or early career researchers. And then finally, personal attributes, skills and expertise are very important preconditions. So collaborative disposition is important. Disciplinary expertise remains an important foundation for developing equal and trusted partners with, with other experts so that you can rely on the expertise of the others that you're working with. And then there's also an important role for what some call integration expertise, um, the often hidden work involved in creating collaborative conditions, facilitating understanding and bridging gaps between disciplines. Um, so finally, then under, involving the right stakeholder expertise and being open to working with partners outside of academia and valuing their knowledge where, where that's appropriate to the project. So I'll say a little more about um, integration expertise, um, the skills and dispositions involved in this kind of bridging work. Uh, ShapeID actually held a webinar last December to discuss this topic, and uh, you can listen back to it if you're interested. Uh, it's, I think it might be particularly interesting for you if you find yourself already working in, in between or ill-defined spaces between disciplines and working to bridge understandings and linking people with different, uh, different perspectives. Some of those skills then involve uh, team building, being able to bridge research and societal problems, often through extensive stakeholder engagement, using facilitation tools and methods, continuous learning through reflexivity, knowledge translation and knowledge sharing between disciplines, sectors and communities. And then it also requires openness, creativity, curiosity, motivation, really being comfortable in the in-between spaces and having the social and emotional skills to navigate interpersonal uh, dimensions and differences. So finally, I want to briefly introduce the ShapeID Toolkit and give you a flavor of some of its resources. Essentially, the toolkit is developed, was developed to address these kind of challenges um, that we identified as in, the, in the project. Um, so we hope to provide 
pathways for researchers and universities, as well as for funders and societal partners to increase their knowledge and understanding of inter and transdisciplinarity, but also in particular to take practical steps to action. So there's a wealth of existing reports, um, lots of recommendations, um, academic papers, and even toolkits on inter and transdisciplinarity, different aspects of it. So the Shape ID toolkit provides curated contextualized access to many of these, first of all, um, to support learning and understandings, tools, methods, best practices, and advice uh, for a range of potential tasks or goals that we identified as being important in the course of the research. Uh, so from understanding or co-creating interdisciplinary research to improving research skills and developing an interdisciplinary career. And then we also highlight valuable existing tools um, like the TDNet, MOOC, and Toolbox on methods for co-producing knowledge, which can be used for at different phases of a research project to work with, uh, with collaborators and stakeholders. Um, so you can access quick tips and guides, or you can also dive deeper into the resources to learn more. So I'll just show you a few examples. Um, our Understand Inter and Transdisciplinary Research section, for example, provides introductory resources for those interested in learning more about these practices, including annotated reading lists, reading on the roles the AHSS can play, and case studies collated by other organizations like Net for Society and LERU. And this is supplemented by our own case studies page, which summarizes or showcases projects uh, that demonstrate AHSS leadership, as well as some institutional and funding initiatives. We also created bespoke tools to provide quick access to recommendations or things to consider, such as our top 10 tips on writing an inter and transdisciplinary proposal, working in multi-stakeholder collaborations, working with policymakers, and developing inter and transdisciplinary careers. The latter might be particularly interesting to early career researchers. The tips highlight that this is more challenging than disciplinary research in many ways, and it emphasizes the importance of building a network of like-minded peers, building core competencies like leadership, communication, negotiation, etc. A lot of things that came up in the first um, in the first discussion of this of this session, uh, and then also things like maintaining continuous dialogue with PhD supervisors to ensure clarity about methodologies, format, and focus. Then we also created a series of reflective tools, including for researchers uh, considering or beginning collaboration, as well as for institutions reviewing or developing policies to support interdisciplinary research. In particular, the reflective tool for considering collaborative research might be useful to those starting out, providing a list of questions to consider, uh, such as why you want to collaborate and what you want to achieve by doing so, whether your project really requires an inter or transdisciplinary approach, who you should work with to achieve your goals, and what you expect, what you and the others could potentially bring to the collaboration. So good things to think about, uh, I suppose, if you're thinking about embarking on a collaborative project or you're thinking about how you might, you know, approach um, somebody from another discipline to discuss the potential of collaboration, to just kind of really get clear in your own mind what, uh, what it is that you're hoping to achieve and how you, might, how you might frame that, how you might position yourself for that potential collaboration. So, there's lots more tools, but I'm out of time. So uh, you can access the toolkit at shapeidtoolkit.eu. Um, I hope you'll have a look around. I hope you'll enjoy exploring it. Thanks for listening. And um, I welcome any questions either in the discussion that follows or uh, by email. And look forward to hearing uh, the next few speakers talk about their experiences. Thanks very much. Thank you, um, Thank you, Darren. It was great to, to hear about that. It's um, really important to put a, a, a it's really nice to see this um, framework that you've you've put on on this effort which is um, something that I think would be really useful 
and I suppose um, where I'm coming from um, to this humanities space is currently more as an educator and a student myself, rather than as somebody whose neuroscience research can actually currently be considered interdisciplinary, although I'm, I'm certainly trying to make a shift in that direction. Um, I'm collaborating with Amelia, for example, but um, also um, in association with my interest in uh, climate and biodiversity crises, um, I'd like to, to see how I can uh, um, uh, build uh, research in that direction. So um, I teach, uh, I actually teach a senior level module on morality and moral development. And so that's the kind of primary point of intersection of my work with the humanities. Um, but I think that, you know, morality and moral decision making is just a perfect example of a topic that really requires the kind of interdisciplinarity um, that we're talking about today. Um, and similarly to how um, the kind of understanding of human thought and behavior that has uh, emerged from psychological research uh, really put lie to, you know, homo economicus, which is the, the model of human behavior at the center of economics, which expects people to always act in accordance with strict rational self-interest. You know, the, we know that that's just simply a, a, a very inaccurate understanding of human thought and behavior. Um, psychological research is similarly forced a fairly um, dramatic redrawing of our understanding of morality and how morality works. Um, and of course, morality has you know, for centuries been very much confined to the domain of philosophy and theology, um, where, you know, the debates and uh, thinking and research, well, um, yeah, research and work uh, really focused on, um, uh, you know, the, the, I suppose the relative merits of um, different uh, um, schools of thought on, on morality and um, the merits of rule-based or deontological versus utilitarian or conse consequentialist moralities um, with the goal being to identify this you know, set of universal moral principles that separate right from wrong and can tell us how, um, how we should act in any given situation. Um, but when so when psychologists first became interested in moral decision making and moral behavior and began to apply scientific methods to understand um, how, um, in particular, how moral, morality develops from childhood, um, their theories of morality and that develop, uh, moral development were very rooted in these very prescriptive philosophical theories. And as a result, they didn't really um, capture uh, um, moral behavior very well. So. With time though, um, researchers from a range of disciplines, um, including psychology, but also stretching from ethology and evolutionary biology through to neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience. Um, as these research became really interested in, in um, how morality really works, we um, began to appreciate that real world human behavior often deviates very significantly from those kind of normative um, moral theories. And this understanding has really um, shifted our perspective on morality. Um, so it's no longer really seen as this um, kind of rule book that is acquired through learning, through socialization, learning from our parents, peers, teachers, religious leaders, and so on. Um, instead, we, we've come to appreciate uh, morality as something um, more like our moral capacities, our moral decision making and behavior is something that reflects uh, 
a, a really diverse set of evolutionarily deep-rooted psychological capacities. And these are conceptualized um, by people um, thinking in this field at the moment as essentially as nature's solution to the need to put us ahead of me. So the need to collaborate and cooperate with one another, which was a, a need that arose during our evolutionary history and now lies at the heart of much of our behavior, but particularly um, our moral behavior. And it can explain a whole diversity of human tendencies. Um, you know, even things that seem kind of relatively unrelated, like our tendency to gossip and our love of stories. Um, so, uh, this um, Amelia referred to the, the um, paper in Neuron that I wrote with uh, Redmond O'Connell last year, and this was really the focus. You know, we were talking about what you know, um, uh, what can neuroscience add to our understanding of morality, and so we we gave an overview of of the kinds of um, advances in our understanding of of moral decision making that have been enabled by this interdisciplinary approach. Um, so this insight that morality um, reflects uh, an evolved capacity really supports, you know, our effort or our endeavor to understand its neural bases, not just in humans, but across species. And that, you know, opens up a whole vista of research questions relating to like, what morality really is, where it comes from. Um, how and why morality vary from person to person, from situation to situation, how it can be altered, manipulated, or even you know, augmented or improved. And so the research that has arisen out of this has really um, improved our understanding of the, the psychological processes and the neurological processes that play a role in moral decisions. And the extent to which these actually overlap um, uh, a lot with the kinds of thought and decision that that support lots of other um, features of human um, thought and behavior. Um, so uh, um, they have huge overlap with um, our uh, perspective taking and empathy, um, as well as the, the kinds of processes that play a role in, in, in economic choice. And because of this understanding, we, we've started to appreciate, you know, how it is that morality um, is uh, uh, deviates, I suppose, from those ideals um, that the philosophers and theologians would have spoken of. Um, our moral decisions, our moral thinking, our moral behavior are subject to, to many of the same um, you know, biases, um, what are known as heuristic, heuristics and biases or shortcomings, um, and other you know, social influences like our, you know, our group identity, our expectations about other people's behavior. Um, our morality is is subject to these same things. It's not a, um, you know, like I said, it's not a kind of um, concrete um, rule book that is etched in our minds. It's something that can be quite fluid, quite responsive to um, the particular social influences that we're um, experiencing at any given time. But this, um, again, this, you know, this interdisciplinary approach or this, um, uh, what, what neuroscience has, has brought to our understanding of morality, um, uh, are, are things like being able to apply, you know, very sophisticated computational models to kind of better parse the specific, you know, psychological and behavioral and neurological parameters that play a role in these kinds of decisions. And this research can be really, really valuable, but there's also things that can get um, lost in, I suppose, in neuroscience um, 
uh, a neuroscience perspective um, that, that I suppose underline the need for interdisciplinarity. So for example, neuroscience and psychology often use um, really stylized tasks, um, you know, that they're um, involve a very narrow range of, of decisions or options, and they're often um, really lacking context. So you might be asked to make decisions about how to interact with someone how to divide up money, whether to punish someone for not cooperating, um, but that someone is usually um, uh, lacks an identity. So they're genderless, raceless, they're anonymous. And, and this obviously is not how we make you know, moral decisions in everyday life. So I think there's huge scope for further engagement with um, humanity subjects, for example, that consider these or, or you know, embrace these kinds of considerations um, in their understanding of human behavior. And there are movements in cognitive neuroscience to, you know, um, I suppose, incorporate a, um, a, a better understanding of, of that complexity. So, for example, using naturalistic paradigms that um, really in, in, uh, improve the ecological validity of what we study. And I think there's huge possibilities for the study of, for example, moral development there, because those kinds of approaches are more amenable for work with children. And that's something that I'd like to, to work on going forward. Um, but just the last thing that I wanted to say is, um, uh, for me, uh, one of the really interesting questions and um, a real need for connection with the humanities and, and probably that kind of transdisciplinary uh, work that uh, Duran mentioned is um, this kind of question or our understanding of humans as fundamentally and innately um, a, a cooperative and collaborative animals. Um, animals that are, are literally wired to cooperate and collaborate with one another. But what we can see, you know, after 18 months of the COVID pandemic and with the climate and ecological crises that, that we face um, ahead, um, you know, these are problems that require cooperative action um, at local levels, but also on global scales that we've never seen before. And we can see the challenges to this, the, the economic, um, you know, uh, social, political systems that we've built for ourselves seem to be fundamentally disruptive to those cooperative instincts. And um, one of the problems that I'd really like to tackle with an interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary approach is, is, uh, is that problem, so how we can move um, towards the kinds of cooperative action that we need uh, to tackle these problems. I think it's my turn now. Uh, thank you for that, Claire, and thank you, uh, Duren. Um, it's uh, it's great to hear uh, a perspective from other people regarding uh, how they they uh, conceive of their own research in, in a kind of a, a more general context of especially one of interdisciplinarity and also uh, in the neurohumanities. Um, I'm not going to present any slides. I'm just going to talk a little bit about the kind of work that I've been doing. Um, and I'm going to focus a little bit on the failures uh, that I've had, because uh, I've had certainly some over the years, as well as some of the successes. Um, and uh, hopefully that will uh, maybe spur uh, a little bit of uh, uh, thinking in, in terms of how, how uh, we should conceive of success and failure, uh, which I've kind of come to think of as relative rather than uh, absolute terms. So just to uh, give a kind of a start place, 
my own research, uh, the bread and butter research that I do, uh, has been very much fun, uh, focused on understanding the memory systems of the brain and uh, trying to understand how they are affected by uh, stress and depression. Um, and uh, in a way, that's kind of, I suppose, a kind of a narrow topic, but in, in a way, it's also a very broad one because memory is at the, the essence of our humanity. We need to remember uh, all sorts of things about ourselves in order to cooperate with each other and to do that on a, on a continuing basis. And we have terrible issues to do with memory in society, uh, which we really haven't gotten a grip on, uh, particularly to do with uh, how we design policies around uh, the prevention of dementia, for example, uh, or what we should do in terms of, of treatment for conditions like Alzheimer's disease, disease which involve uh, in part, not, not in whole, but certainly in part, uh, a loss of uh, memory and a loss of personality and, and the humanity of the individual. So I've had um, in the neurohumanities kind of three uh, evolving areas that I've focused on. Uh, the first uh, is on the neuroscience of torture. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about how I got into that in a minute. A second uh, has been on uh, walking. Um, and the third comes back to uh, kind of a more general interest of mine, which is to focus on uh, memory, but in a collective uh, context and how uh, we can take autobiographical memory, narrative memory and collective memory and generalize this uh, to institutions and even beyond uh, to nations. Um, so my interest in torture, uh, I, I should actually, I'll just pull back just a little bit. Um, the, one of the important things, and Claire has used this phrase already, uh, to remember about the brain is that it is an evolved organ um, and many parts of the brain are involved in many different psychological functions. Um, so uh, a particular part of the brain that I've been very interested in for many years is the hippocampal formation. Um, and the hippocampal formation, which when it's damaged, results in uh, profound and enduring amnesia, uh, 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 an amnesia which will not resolve over the course of your life. Uh, and we know that uh, uh, the hippocampus is also attacked by stress, and it's also profoundly affected uh, by depression uh, and by conditions that, that uh, might give rise to depression. Um, but also the hippocampus performs roles in spatial navigation and knowing where you are in the world. Uh, and it also performs roles in, in terms of prospective thinking, thinking about your future, but also in thinking about the past, so mental time travel. So the one structure can be involved in many, many different things, depending on the networks that are activated at, at that time. So this kind of, makes life easy in a way conceptually because uh, you've got to focus on a particular structure uh, and how it might be affected in particular tasks. So my interest in the neuroscience of torture actually is, is very straightforward and arose as the result of a happy accident uh, to the extent that the word happy could be used in these circumstances. Um, I was reading the Irish Times newspaper uh, one Saturday morning in April 2009 uh, and I can date that very precisely because that was when then President Obama released the uh, torture memos. And Peter Murtaugh uh, had written a, a huge piece on the contents of those memos. And uh, while I was reading it, I, I, the thought occurred to me that actually the things that were being done uh, in an effort to get access to the memories of these uh, individuals were the kinds of things that you would do if you wanted to destroy the fabric of memory in the brain. Um, so I, I wrote a, a, a pitch for a paper 
uh, to a journal um, uh, and eventually after reviewing and all the rest of it, it was accepted. And that led on to invitations to write more papers in the area and eventually to, uh, to write a book, which I'll talk about again in a moment. Um, the next focus, uh, and I, I call this kind of my happy book, I suppose, it has been on walking. Um, I've always loved to walk, and uh, I realized that nobody had told the story of walking from inside the brain out and from outside in the world in. Um, and uh, the kinds of structures, again, that are engaged uh, during walking are the same kinds of structures that are engaged um, during memory, uh, during spatial navigation, during a whole variety of these phenomena. So what I tried to do in that book was to pull these things together. And then finally, I'm doing a book at the moment on uh, collective memory. Uh, it's you know, about 70,000 words in and I hope to finish it by about Christmas. And what I'm trying to do here is, is to pull together thoughts on autobiographical memory, narrative and collective memory, and to try and generalize these to understand how institutions arise and, and uh, a little bit arrogantly, I guess, because this is moving into the domain of political science, how nations uh, might arise. Now, uh, let, let me talk a little bit about failures first. Um, the torture book, uh, I suggested, or I pitched it to quite a few uh, publishers, and I was met with a resounding no, that this was a depressing topic, this was an unpleasant topic, uh, there was no audience for it, and all of the rest of it. Um, and then I was lucky, uh, Harvard University Press had a senior editor who had worked in uh, human rights law and uh, he uh, uh, took the book very, very seriously and worked with me on, on shaping it and uh, it ended up having a, a variety of, of consequences, uh, which I can talk about in, in a while. I, I have written two other books which I haven't published. One on the hippocampus and memory, which was terrible. Uh, I was very premature and it's sitting in, on a shelf in my uh, study and it will never ever get published. And another book on stress and memory, which was also terrible. It was very premature and uh, it didn't go anywhere. And then last year I wrote a research grant on walking based largely on, on my walking book. Uh, this was a very interdisciplinary grant. And I got a real hard no from the referees on this uh, research grant uh, and the feedback was really stay in your lane mate it is uh, uh, because I was trying to cut across uh, from uh, biological functions to psychological functions and social functions uh, in the one research grant um, and uh, anyway people didn't like it that's life uh, that that happens um, but uh, that that's you know what can you say um, so anyway, those are some failures. I've had many other failures, of course, uh, with things in my research over the years, but I, I won't talk about them here. Um, the torture book, though, uh, ended up being very consequential in all sorts of ways. Um, I got to talk at the United Nations twice. Uh, I was invited to be a member of a, a UN panel on investigative interviewing, and I helped uh, in a a number of, uh, of ways with the drafting of, of uh, guidelines for the interrogation of, of uh, or, or rather the investigative interviewing of suspects in uh, police custody. Um, nobody else had, had kind of come at the issue of torture from this, this neuroscientific point of view. So I was very lucky where that, that was concerned. Um, with the walking book, that, that has been, you know, a very nice and very different thing to have done. Um, I managed to get uh, a mention 
of a, a brain structure known as the anterior thalamus into uh, Harper's Bazaar, which uh, is a, a magazine devoted to high fashion. So I feel very, very uh, proud of, of that crossover. Um, and uh, it was, it is, it has been a successful book in, in other ways. And then time will tell whether the current book will go anywhere or not. Um, so let, let me just make uh, a few general comments about interdisciplinary research. Uh, first of all, it's hard. Uh, and there's no point pretending otherwise. Um, you need to be able to look at a problem that other people are looking at in a new way. Um, giving people a, a lens through which to view an argument that hasn't productively moved on is a really, really uh, important thing to do. So just to focus on the, on the torture book for a moment, the, the argument on torture had almost ground to a standstill. The, uh, Kantian style philosophers had a, uh, a because it is wrong uh, view of torture. The legal scholars, interestingly, uh, were very consequentialist in their views. Um, and there was legal memos that powered the view uh, that torture should be used uh, in a national security context in the US. Um, and uh, the contractualists had very little to offer. Um, and the legal scholars were very much uh, consequentialists in, in their view. Um, but looking at their argument on the face of it, uh, through the lens of what they were suggesting should be done and asking the question, what effect do these techniques have on brain function and on the very things that you're trying to elicit information about uh, have, hadn't been done. So I, I think the book um, really did, at that time, because it's, it's five or six years ago now, really had an important impact in the sense of moving the conversation on. And there's a large literature now, uh, which is available, which I think is, is, is uh, wasn't there when the torture memos uh, were originally written. So that kind of means that timing is very important. Um, and it means that trying to figure out how to move a conversation on uh, is very important. It also means knowing to keep going with something that, that is important at a time when it needs to be done is, is, is also a, an important thing to do. Um, and it also means being able to say uh, that a focus in this area will actually materially shift how people uh, view things. Um, so that, that's a hard thing to do. So, you know, just again, to focus on torture uh, for a moment, the philosophical literature, I had nothing to add to. Um, the, uh, at least since the time of Kant, but really going back to Hobbes um, and uh, uh, even further back uh, to the Inquisition and, and beyond. Uh, there's a literature of maybe 1500 years or more duration uh, on this topic in the philosophical domain. There's a legal literature which is at least 200, if not 400 years old. Um, and uh, there are other literatures in political science and, and ethics and other uh, history and other domains that are relevant. And I had nothing useful to say to any of those areas. Um, but trying to, to focus on the consequences of a decision to torture uh, in terms of the effect that it has on the brain that you're doing these things to is something that I could do because of my interest in stress and, and depression. So I, I think timing can be very important. Um, knowing where your limits are uh, is very important. And deciding uh, to ignore certain areas, uh, I think, is also important because you know 
intellectually you have nothing to add to them that you want to try uh, and do uh, something different. I also think luck has a, an unfortunately large role to play as well. Um, you don't know who's going to uh, be seeing the material that you produce necessarily. Uh, it may go to anonymous referees. Uh, it may go to people um, with whom you would never normally interact. Again, just to, to focus on, on the, the neuroscience of torture just for a moment, I received lots of letters and emails of support uh, from people, but I also got quite a few, uh, I won't say nasty, but certainly um, searching uh, letters and uh, emails, and, and they've persisted up until uh, about a year or two ago. And I think the steam has gone out of the argument that we should torture people, thankfully. Um, uh, there, there, there's uh, anyway, so I, I, I will kind of uh, uh, leave that at that point and really just try and summarize by saying that um, interdisciplinary work is difficult. You need to know uh, what you can contribute to that will move a discussion on. Um, and I have this half sense that interdisciplinary work can work very, very well, and the arguments within uh, a domain have kind of ground to a standstill and they need. Uh, a fresh set of eyes. Uh, and that's not to disregard the arguments. Uh, I think they're very important. Uh, but uh, to be able to look at this problem afresh through a, through a new set of eyes. Okay, I will uh, stop at that point. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, uh, Shane and Claire and Darren, um, for uh, three really, really interesting and um, very different presentations there. Um, I thought I think before we um, we open uh, up into the sort of general Q and A, maybe just some sort of general comments that I, I know I have as as a uh, as as a listener and observer that it, it just strikes me really interesting how I feel that there is a sort of philosophical undercurrent um, to all three of your uh, areas and sort of research interests, and I feel that it's particularly interesting that I think neurohumanities in particular always in some sense seems to kind of have this recourse to philosophy that you're never really more of a stone's throw away from a thorny philosophical issue or from the influence of philosophy. Um, so I think like what, what we might do now is that I, I know like I myself and Fiona have uh, a couple of different questions that we'd like to ask the panel in general and we'd also like to ask maybe more specifically to the speakers so we might ask general questions and then if we have a particular one that we're um, addressing to one of you we'll just uh, just address you by name but um, all three of you can feel free to, to jump into the, to the general questions um, I'll just remind the audience as well that you're more than welcome to start posting your questions in the Q&A comments and um, anything like that there's the Q&A function is there and um, that's what it's there for so um, feel free to, to let let loose um, with any questions that you might have, have uh, might have arising from from the conversation there. Um, but for, there's lots of different areas that I'd love to ask um, all three of you to, to comment on, particularly in relation to your presentations and, and in general. But maybe in, maybe kind of jumping off the back of, of of the kind of the theme of the panel overall, which is the challenges, I suppose, of integrating this sort of interdisciplinary approach. Um, one thing that I know I come up against a lot, and that Fiona comes up against a lot as well, um, is this idea of um, that that how how do how do you best sift through there's so much research out there that uh, adopts the moniker of, of neurohumanities and often I think somewhat problematically can adopt the prefix of neuro and there is something that I find like I come across a huge amount um, as I'm sure everyone else does too of this problem of you kind of whack a neuro prefix in front of anything and it's sort of seem it's the, the aim seems to be to add this kind of air of legitimacy or this sort of like extra layer of credibility um, and I was wondering you know there's lots of different um, there's some really really good critiques against this particular policy and lots of different kind of funny ways of, of um, that, that 
different um, critics have of kind of characterizing it, whether it's neuroskepticism or like neurobabble. And I know um, Raymond Tallis calls it neuromania. And um, so I was wondering a little bit, maybe in general, um, for, for Claire and for Shane and for Darren as well, um, how do you find in relation to your own research or in general, how do you negotiate the research that let's say is a little bit more theoretically sound or you feel has more to contribute from the research that can have this tendency to just kind of I don't know I suppose throw in a picture of an MRI machine or it scans and, and kind of claim to add this extra layer of scientific legitimacy to maybe a humanities problem. I think Shane might have some more concrete thoughts on this I mean I, I think you know you're totally right that this is a this is an issue, and, and there was research that showed that you know people are more likely to be to be convinced by a um, you know a media piece that was that had some brain pictures in it. Although I'm not sure that that research held up to replication. I'm not sure this, the effect is as strong as was suggested. But um, it, you know it is it's it's a real issue. It's is neurohumanities a kind of a trendy word that's been applied to anything and everything. And and I think that. You know, maybe I mean I've learned a lot from this session myself, particularly from and um, from both Darren and Shane about you know um, meaningful interdisciplinarity. Um, I think as somebody who's who's not who actually hasn't really done research in this, um, uh, in this space yet, I'm 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 kind of on the outside um, trying to to figure out how to make a move in that direction. Um, this is incredibly useful. Um, and and I think that 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 caution about just um, sticking a, a trendy label on something, um, but you know what Shane has talked about, like how it has to be a really meaningful contribution. You know where where is it that there's a gap in our understanding that neuroscience in particular can make can can help you know break through. Uh, um, you know, a, a wall that has has you know arisen in, in the thinking about something. So. Um, I'll just add, add a little bit to that uh, from Claire, I, I, and, and just to kind of emphasize the point that uh, adding neuro to something doesn't mean that it, you've explained anything. Um, and often the neuro bit can be the most uninteresting bit. Uh, you know, we, we forget that the brain is inside a body and uh, the body is inside a, a world, a physical world and a, a social world. And uh, the traffic between uh, the body, brain, and the world is two-way. Um, you know, so I think in the opening remarks, um, uh, Manny was was uh, suggested as have using the the phrase rigor, uh, and I think that's really fundamentally the, the the kind of the bottom line, isn't it? You know, are, are the thoughts that you've got evidence based? Are they logical? Are they rigorous? Do they stand up uh, to scrutiny? Um, all of those kinds of things, I think, are really the uh, kind of at the core of 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 uh, what we try and do. And uh, you know, you, you, being able to interrogate your own uh, uh, biases uh, where uh, something is concerned is is, is uh, really important. Um, but just adding the phrase "neuro" isn't going to advance understanding in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I, I, if if nobody was to do that, that would be kind of a good thing, <laughs> uh, in a way, uh, because uh, really we should be focused on on the problem rather than on the uh, the label that's applied uh, to the problem. 
Yeah, I think that's such a good point, both both Shane and Claire, because I know there was, you know, there was something that you mentioned in, in your presentation, um, Claire, that I thought was, was really interesting regarding morality, um, that, you know, that, that this idea of like, like, is it correct to even equate states of morality or, or problems within morality to brain states? Or is that a sort of correlation that should be pursued? And if so, what is the actual explanatory power of that? You know, like, is, is that just, just to kind of find a correlation between the kind of age old problem between like the kind of physical material of, of the brain or the physicalism of, of the brain versus the kind of more conceptual um, or sort of like like you're sort of implying shame this idea of like us existing in a body in a world and all those kind of the, the associated influences with that so I just thought that that was a particularly interesting point as well I don't know if either of you wants to elaborate a little bit more on that maybe in relation to morality particularly because it seemed to be a, a little bit of a linking theme to both of your talks um I, I suppose I, I I've kind of felt that I don't have a huge amount of uh, to add where morality is concerned uh, you know, the, 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 there's, as I've said, there's literatures going back in religion and in philosophy on, on morality of, of uh, hundreds of years standing, if not millennia. Uh, so I think the key thing is to be able to figure out how you can contribute something, uh, um, but obviously being aware of, of issues to do with morality is, is, uh, is very important. For for me, the um, so the neuroscientific understanding of morality, um, and particularly the one that's rooted in an evolutionary perspective, has been enormously powerful. Um, I think it 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 provides an understanding of morality that 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 um, uh, sees you know moral behavior as something that's quite intrinsic to 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 human beings. Um, and you know it's not like as I, I mentioned it's not um it won't provide us with um a comprehensive understanding of morality and moral behavior which as shane said you know is uh, we're, we're not just brains we are um people operating in social economic political uh, uh environmental contexts um but it ultimately um gives a perspective of human behavior that says that we, you know we um, we are essentially built to um, to be moral what we consider moral it reflects the way that we have been we have evolved um, and that is rooted in, in the, the, the structure and function of our brains and for me it removes this any any need to appeal to a deity any need to appeal to um, yeah, these ex external sources of, of what is right and what is wrong. Um, now, I don't want to get into the trap of kind of saying because it's, you know, that this, um, because something is, is natural or innate, that means it's right and it means that humans always do the right thing. That's absolutely not the case, but I think it gives us a really different way um, to understand um, uh, human behavior. Um, and one that I think is particularly important in the current. Um, in, the, in, in these dilemmas that we face, as I mentioned, like we think about the climate crisis, which is, you know, just by far the biggest uh, crisis faced by humanity um, and the barriers to action are barriers that have been that are created by these systems that we've created, but don't necessarily reflect 
um, as something inherent to humans that we cannot solve this crisis because of the way we're built. In fact, it's the opposite, but we've happened to, to build some systems that are standing in the way. Um, so I think there's some really useful, um, there's some really useful understandings of, of human uh, behavior that, that this neuro and neuroscientific perspective to, can give that are absent from the more traditional humanities. Brilliant, Claire. Thank you so much for that answer. I mean, we have a question that came in from um, from Eve Patton, actually, um, and I, you may, you've kind of touched a little bit on, on some of the concepts that Eve was asking already, but I, I'll read out her question anyway, and maybe if you want to add some more comments, you can. But um, Eve says, very interested to hear Claire discuss the limitations of computational modelling in relation to the analysis of morality. Uh, could you reflect further on the methodological gaps between the apparent objectivity of data-led STEM approaches and the apparent subjectivity of an arts and humanities reliance on textual interpretation nuance, perception, etc. Yeah, I probably don't have very well formed thoughts on this, except to say that, yeah, I, I see this as a really important tension. And it's something that, you know, I, I feel like I've started to come full circle from being a bit like a, a, a very a positivistic, you know, um, uh, objective science data, you know, um, coming to uh, appreciate in much uh, to uh, um, much more um, uh, this the, the kind of nuance um, of human you know human behavior and the kinds of influences that we are subject to that are just incredibly difficult to capture. Now we can you know I, I don't want to disparage like you know these computational modeling approaches that really do try to you know identify and parse these different influences and, and to um, capture them in, a, in a, an equation that describes or predicts behavior. Uh, and I think this is really important and there's a huge amount to be gained and, and those kinds of approaches can solve you know um, theoretical disputes about, uh, um, uh, the, the um, influences of particular factors or um, the ways, just the ways in which decisions are made. Um, but are they ever going to, you know, they, are they going to give us a, a complete understanding of human behavior, um, you know, in the absence of that, that more humanities perspective? Um, I don't think so. Um, but but bringing um, bringing you know what Eve as 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 contrasted there bringing those together is quite a significant disciplinary gap um, that's that that won't be bridged easily. Uh, but I think it, you know ultimately um, uh, we 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 should be able to um, start to understand each other's perspectives a bit more maybe. Super. Thank you, Claire. We have two questions that have come in that sort of link a little bit, I suppose, to, to each other that I might ask to, to the panel. So, um, yeah, so one is from um, Anna Trimborn, who and Anna has asked, uh, she says, hello, thank you so much for the many in interesting insights. Um, so Anna says, do you have advice on how to initiate a conversation about collaboration and reflection process about the related ways and strategy strategies, particularly in interdisciplinary teams, which, of course, also often have big differences in communication patterns? Um, how did you go about this in your prior interdisciplinary collaborations? So that's Anna's question for maybe for um, Claire and Shane. Um, we also have um, a, a comment from Darren herself, who and Darren has, has asked, uh, she, she said she'd love to hear more from Claire and Shane about how much they actively collaborated with researchers in other domains on these fascinating projects. Were they collaborative projects or more individual contributions that brought new perspective 
through an interdisciplinary approach. So I suppose those two questions link together in this idea of how did you both or how do you both go about uh, fostering interdisciplinary collaborations? Um, is it team led? Is it individual led? Maybe you could tell us both, both of you could tell us a little bit more about um, your various different endeavors over the years on how they have worked. Um, maybe I'll go quickly first then. Um, so my bread and butter research is very collaborative. Um, I've hardly published any papers without uh, other authors uh, on them. Uh, funnily enough, my interdisciplinary work has been almost solo, um, or largely solo, uh, but the, the consequences of it haven't been. So after the, uh, the torture book came out, um, I started having conversations with a political scientist in the US uh, John Scheiman, who was very interested in, in these areas as well, and uh, we published uh, a paper together a, a year or two ago, uh, addressing torture from uh, our unique, or, our, or rather our differing perspectives, and that was a, a really uh, a wonderful thing to be able to do. Um, similarly with the UN panels, uh, to be in a room with lots of other people, from the law, from philosophy, from uh, human rights groups and, and other places uh, is, is a great experience uh, and I, I have a half sense, I, I, I'm happy to be wrong, that seeking collaboration before you've actually defined what you can contribute is a waste of time, that uh, you're better off seeing what you can do that adds value to something that somebody else is doing rather than going along and, and saying this is uh, interesting, can we work on this together? You need, I think you need to go much further than that. Um, and I think you need to have a sense of, of the value that you've got that they can see. It's, so this isn't about you, it's about what others think of you. Um, and uh, I, I think the collaborations may fall or may follow afterwards uh, rather than happen uh, beforehand. Now, I might be totally wrong in that. Uh, there might be lots of other ways of thinking about it. I'm sure there are, but just my sense of it is that uh, if others can see that you've got something unique that you can help with their problem, then you've got something that's really useful collaboratively. Um, I think, so as I mentioned, I haven't really started research in this space per se. You know, I said I teach and I'm really interested in it. Um, and I've started collaborating a little bit with Amelia, but that's really the first, uh, my first foray into this um, space properly. Um, I suppose one of the like from my perspective just thinking like what would um, some of the challenges and um, how we might address them are you know and, and I think this was raised in another question or in that question um, you know we we kind of we have fundamentally different paradigms not like not just the way we think about you know our subject um, but but the way we operate a PhD um, you know the way we work together the way we co-author papers the way we think of um, you know, senior authorship and even mentorship and so on. And, and those um, differences probably contribute a little bit to the challenge of doing this interdisciplinary work. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was wondering whether um, some just basic workshops on, you know, how does, how does research work in the humanities versus STEM? 
Um, how does, you know, how, what does a PhD look like? Um, how, how do you go about doing one in these different subjects? Because there's a, there's a little bit of a fundamental, I shouldn't say incompatibility, because of course it's, you know, um, we can solve or we can resolve it. Um, but there is a bit of a challenge there at first that we just, we operate very differently. So I think, I think um, uh, thinking about how we can uh, help each other understand our approaches to, to work would, would be something that would help in this space. Yeah, of course, Darren, do you want to jump in there? Yeah, yeah, just, um, I guess, to re to emphasize, to, to agree with what Claire has said about um, having those conversations. And I think that, you know, that's what I was thinking when you asked the first question about, is the neurohumanities a useful term or, you know, um, or is it problematic because it's kind of just trendy? Interdisciplinarity is, um, a lot of people are suspicious of interdisciplinarity because it seems like a fad or a trend or something. And um, it is used in that way. A lot of people will say their work is interdisciplinary when it's not because they have maybe, you know, thought about something that is a little bit on the bridge of the edges of their discipline. Um, but I think, um, yeah, having that, having those conversations. So most um, research on uh, humanities, uh, researchers involved in interdisciplinary projects in Denmark showed that, um, 80% of collaborations or something like that started just from curiosity from just people having conversations and trying to figure out together what is the common point or the kind of things that we can contribute to this if we work together so that question how might we work together what might we do differently if we could work together what could we produce that would be different what either of us would do alone um, and then so that kind of openness that kind of seeing that hyphen as a sort of a bridge a kind of a, you know a space for kind of conversations to take place I think is interesting um, so yeah just to informal conversations that's what we should be fostering. I think that's why this um, this series is so important, Amelia. And can I, can I just add to that, that that I think you know one of the things that I wanted to raise at this discussion um, is is just the fundamental challenge to this posed by the time constraints that we're all under and all the the demands that we face. And I have to admit to um, you know when the um, neurohumanities program was first launched. I just viewed it as as kind of a, an intellectual um, uh, a luxury that that I couldn't afford at that point in time, and so I, you know, because because the talks were on at six o'clock, and I have a young family, I couldn't make them. Um, you know, I am under pressure to get papers out, to apply for research funding, to support, you know, to do the research supervision. Um, you know, everybody and, and increase, you know, we, we all, everybody who works in the university is aware of all the increasing administrative burden that we have to put up with all the time. And so it can just be kind of really difficult to make space to find those connections and, um, uh, you know, find, even think about like how, how it is that I might make a contribution, you know, as Shane said, like it's just this, this really important aspect of interdisciplinary work. It just doesn't even come into the consideration of many people, um, either in STEM or in the humanities, because, because we're just so up against it all the time. Um, and you know, for me, I, it's just also finding, start, like I suppose giving yourself to find that, giving yourself the space um, to find that um, value, um, even in just exploring and, and being exposed to um, a different discipline um, can, uh, is it's difficult, but then it's so rewarding when you do. So I'd love to think about how we can make it easier for people. 
And I think it's such an excellent point, Claire. And I know it's it's something that I'm quite aware of as, as you know, as somebody working in neurohumanities, which I feel for a very long time has been classed as an emerging field. And I sometimes feel a little bit myself, you know, when are we going to say that it has emerged like it is here to stay? Um, but as you say, then, because it's, I suppose, in I suppose in, in some senses, in its in its emerging emerging state within Trinity and, and the, the wider academic community in general, there is, as you say, there's there's not that same sort of space afforded to it. It's almost as if it has to exist in this sort of space where it's still proving itself. Um, as a legitimate venture and as you say not just like an intellectual luxury I know Manny was saying two weeks ago when he was speaking here that all of the neurohumanities things that he would love to explore if he had the time you know if there weren't also the the adjacent things that need to keep going and, and keep ticking over um but I suppose that, that kind of like leads leads me on a little bit to to a question that um has also uh, been touched on by we've got a great question in the Q&A from um, Nicholas Johnson so thank you so much for your question um Nick but uh I wanted to ask you guys just in general a little bit about um you know just why the, the why of interdisciplinarity why it's so important and I know both of uh, or all three of you guys especially Darren have touched on just why it's so urgent and, and so important and um, particularly in, as a response I think as an academic and practical response to the many kind of nuanced problems that are facing our world you know everything from climate change to political problems to everything um but i suppose yeah so so um nick johnson has asked um thank you all for this event uh, i'm motivated to supply detail regarding professor omar's comment that torture does not have a constituency half of americans and 80 percent of identifying conservatives support torture in some circumstances according to pew in 2017 um and uh nick johnson has linked linked that there it's just in the q a if anyone wants to look at it um nick goes on to say regrettably research into torture will not go out of style the problem we have to solve to pivot a question uh, to pivot to a question is to how to engage the public and convince them with a scientific expert with a scientific expertise that arises might interdisciplinarity inherently help such engagement so i think nick's question very nicely piggybacks onto the whole idea of the value and the importance of interdisciplinarity um though in a context maybe that shane might want to answer first of all yeah so i, I was insufficiently nuanced in what i said about a constituency uh, what I meant was there's no serious constituency within uh, 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 the security apparatus in the US uh, to support torture anymore. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, when Trump was doing his uh, They Deserve It speeches, Michael Hayden, the then uh, head of the CIA, said if he wants to do this, he's going to have to waterboard himself and, quote, bring his own damn bucket. Um, because uh, the, the consequences of it were so poisonous. And I don't think there's any serious legal argument. Uh, so by constituency, I, I meant, uh, I should have been careful enough to say uh, what I meant was within policymaking circles, uh, not within the, the public at large. Uh, regrettably, of course, there is a, a, a large fraction, not just at the US population, but worldwide surveys show that many people support the use of, of torture. Um, and we also know uh, that most torture happens in police stations in the first 24 hours after people are arrested uh, because police uh, are incentivized to clear cases on the basis of confessions. Um, and I think the, the uh, UN move uh, under the Mendez principles to focus on truth finding rather than confession seeking uh, provides a kind of a base for which countries need to uh, respond when uh, countrywide investigations uh, are conducted. Um, and uh, we, we know from in places like uh, the United Kingdom when the Police and Criminal Evidence Act came in and there was mandatory recording of, of interrogations, that allegations of abuse, excuse me, 
by police officers fell through the floor while conviction rates uh, didn't change. But this orientation towards uh, truth seeking rather than confession finding is is uh, is very very important. Um, so there's a kind of a, a branch of this in, a, in an interdisciplinary way that must go towards law, must go towards politics, that uh, keeping an argument in a rarefied way within philosophy is not good enough. Uh, uh, other domains and disciplines must, must be engaged with. Absolutely. Um, no, thank you so much for, for your answer there, um, Shane. We also have a question that comes in just, just while I have you, um, Shane, I'll, I'll just um, I'll pivot to Howard Lanan has asked a question, um, which and Howard says, um, given the existence since the 1950s of so-called truth serums like pentothal, is torture even necessary to gain information? Um, yeah. I believe that the effect of the form. Yeah. Do you see his, his question there? Yeah, I can um, see the question. Uh, so yeah. the dispute is around the word given. Uh, there are no truth serums. Um, there are no pharmacological agents which affect truth-telling behavior. And in my book on torture, I dig in great detail into uh, the uh, whole business of, of uh, truth serums and psychotropic drugs that are used for interrogation. Um, these were experimented with uh, in Guantanamo and, and also appear in television, you know, uh, in, the, in the now possibly forgotten series 24, they were used very regularly, but they have no uh, existence in reality and uh, the ones that have been tried are pentothal which is in a uh, general anesthetic uh, and that comes with the liability of death if it's uh, uh, overused haldol which is used for the treatment of schizophrenia uh, and there are other ones that have been used as well but uh, uh, none of these have have had any uh, uh, use in this domain and you ac actually must ask the question who has the right to breach the bodily integrity of another person and forcibly inject them with something uh, in a situation where uh, uh, they are already held captive and a few uh, are constrained legal rights? And the answer is nobody uh, has that. Um, there's the, there needs to be a process. So the, the uh, business of, of truth serums, we should just cast into the memory hole. Not to make light of something like that, but it sounds like Shane, you could have a, another interdisciplinary foray in, in uh, being a consultant on um, TV shows and movies. <laughs> because I was, I can just think of, of several things that I've watched in the last month that had truth serum <laughs> administration. But you see, the, the sad reality here is that uh, the two guys who devised the torture program for the US, uh, Jessen and, and Mitchell, were psychologists, clinical psychologists. Um, and uh, if you read their memoirs, they actually talk about how they decided what they would do, what they would do. And what they did was turn their back on what was known in clinical psychology for establishing connection with uh, clients in distress, uh, which is uh, to engage in, in uh, uh, rapport based uh, uh, conversations. And they work really well for information yield. Um, so you have this kind of double tragedy and we still have this perpetuation in the movies that uh, inducing pain uh, is, a, is the road to truth. And actually, you know, we know that's not true. Try and remember a, uh, somebody's telephone number after you've given yourself a nasty paper cut. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the same brain regions that are involved in, in, in control of cognition are also involved in the control of the perception of pain. And these compete for the same space in the brain. Um, you know, the, 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 you can't take the view that these are independent functions 
they're not. The brain is this really evolved, jerry-rigged uh, organ and different brain regions participate in multiple functions. Um, absolutely. Um, I suppose I, I'm quite conscious that I, I know um, Claire has to has to hop off in a few minutes um, to meet a, a to, to go to another meeting that she's very generously agreed to uh, go to late. So I might just ask before we lose Claire um, a question, just just switching topics a little bit. I, I, I suppose um, just to bring it back a little bit. I mean, like as we've said from the beginning, the focus of this series originally was um, to foster neurohumanities uh, conversations and community with postgraduates um, across the college and hopefully beyond. Um, so I suppose I wanted to ask maybe a practical question for all three panelists which is um it relates to i suppose like what are the most valuable practical steps that you think could be done in trinity to support interdisciplinarity in the college and maybe with a, with a focus on neurohumanities or perhaps just interdisciplinarity in general um something i wonder a lot about is whether um interdisciplinary connections or collaborations or the ideas of them should be introduced as a, at an undergraduate level or whether there's a certain baseline amount of knowledge that ought to be uh, established with undergraduates first and I'm kind of getting a little bit ahead of the question that I want to ask you guys but I suppose yeah ultimately what do you think could be done within Trinity to um, foster established support interdisciplinarity um, within the college? I can I try. I suppose I've already mentioned that there's some of the like really practical challenges that I see um, to um, if, you know as with neurohumanities, neurohumanities and interdisciplinary research. Um, so, but I don't have necessarily good solutions to those. Um, I think that you know what has worked for me is when you have these informal opportunities to meet with other people from other fields and and to discuss what your you know your your work and your interests um and uh opportunities for interdisciplinary collaboration can really arise out of those and but but it, you know i think like we, there, there's an eternal problem of how to facilitate those kinds of interactions in, in a way that's organic and not um uh, you know, not very stilted or whatever. So I, I don't really, don't necessarily have good suggestions, except maybe, you know, the usual, reduce our administrative burden, give us more time, <laughs> you know, take away all the, the funding pressures and, and uh, the same, you know, and, and I think that maybe that's why starting with PhD students is a really good idea. Um, because you do, you know, you're in this space where you're getting to, to think about things, you're getting to explore uh, uh, different questions, but again, then the, the PhD students in STEM subjects tend to be like very, very focused on their area and they may not feel that they have the space to explore, for example, humanities. Um, so it's a really tricky question. I agree. I immediately think of um, the long room hub as a space where those kind of conversations can happen, and and just you know, like uh, as somebody, I I had a desk there um, in uh, 2019 to 2020, and I think that that that, for example, is an amazing space in college where those kind of conversations can have can happen, um, either both formally or informally. But I totally agree that it, it's kind of fostering them, and then especially within like we were like you were referencing earlier Claire, like the, the the sheer difference in terms of how um phds are structured across different subjects and how with some humanities subjects you know you're not allowed to really publish content before you've submitted your phd whereas in stem you'd be expected to like that would just be a given and it's a really interesting kind of thing of how to bring them those two very very different experiences that are under the same umbrella of phd uh, experience together it's, it's really really interesting just to think about um i know manny mentioned in his in his talk about the the, maybe the hope, the tentative hope for 
a neurohumanities masters perhaps um, in Trinity at some stage, you know, further down the line. And I think that would be very interesting. Um, but Shane or Darren, do either of you guys want to comment on the question? I'm, about... I'm, I'm really sorry that I have to oh, yeah. leave um, and I've really enjoyed this, uh, especially the, the contributions from Shane and Darren. So thank you very much. And I'm sorry to go. <laughs> no problem. Thank you so much for joining us, Claire. Cheers. Um, so yeah, so Shane and Darren, maybe do either of you guys want to approach that question about it, it, interdisciplinarity in Trinity? Yeah, um, I guess I could say a few things from the point of view of uh, Shape ID and our, our sort of recommendations for research institutions. First, I guess it goes back to, um, I mean, I guess the idea of having a master's or anything like that, that kind of brings me back to the, the first question you asked, Amelia, about why interdisciplinarity is important. And I, I think it's important because disciplines have become so specialized. Um, so, you know, creating a space for, uh, you know, communication across disciplines is, is, is a lot more important than it would have been when disciplines were, you know, had, hadn't you know, specialised as much as they had. Um, one of our, um, uh, we had a, an interesting seminar on what universities could do to um, increase supports for interdisciplinarity um, back in, I don't know, sometime, <laughs> um, September last year, I think it was. Um, and one of the points made was that, um, you don't necessarily want to create new structures that new structures you know are not always the best idea that they're going to kind of um i suppose reify things in a certain way that they're that's fashionable or interesting right now and then you know they become redundant you know so the same can be a problem with research themes so i think you know coming back to making space for academics to have those conversations and facilitating those conversations actively is really important um i think it's very important to bring it in at to bring in some level of interdisciplinary exposure at undergraduate level because people's disciplinary identities and affiliations and their, their sense of culture of belonging to a particular discipline start to form early, especially for those who are interested enough to go on and to, to have a research career. So I think, all, I think all humanities students at undergraduate level should have some exposure to the way that scientists in STEM disciplines think so that, I mean, I know I came through humanities and arts background and I ended up with a lot of biases about the, science, the other sciences, the hard sciences, um, you know, about how they, how they objectified, you know, certain kind of things or how they arrived at certain things. So we had concepts that were inherently sort of anti-science in a way, not, you know, they didn't have to be, but they, you know, led to a certain suspicion of um, constructs about truth or assumptions about truth or things like that. And I'm sure they, you know, converse is true that there's assumptions about humanities in the STEM disciplines as well. So I think exposure at an early stage to really understand how these people think, how they kind of look at reality, how they try to create, you know, models that kind of fit the things, the data that they collect and that they observe and all of those things is really, really interesting. It was, you know, really, it was, it was a kind of an interesting turning point for me when I was working in a, I was working as a research assistant in Tilda after the Irish longitudinal study on aging, listening to statisticians talk about how they modeled reality and how they tried to, you know, look at assumptions, look at the data and look at, create their models to kind of deal with the data. That was really interesting for me coming from a humanities background where I thought I had a very simplified view of statistics. So um, I think bringing that in at a much earlier stage in uh, education is really, really important so that you don't, even if you have silos in terms of disciplines and what you do, that you have a more open-minded kind of relationship to what other people do. Um, and then I think Trinity also need to incentivize it. So as well as creating the time and space for researchers, it's not recognized in hiring. It's not recognized in promotion. There needs to, you know, Trinity needs to champion inter interdisciplinary work where it's happening. They need to make it visible. They need to celebrate it and they need to um, incentivize it. So, so, you know, offer seed funding for people to explore um, internal seed funding to offer to allow people to explore potential networks and build connections. 
and yeah, then to actually make a long-term commitment to it, as, as I've said in a sort of summary of what institutions can do. So lots of things there, but yeah. No, oh, I think I think that's a wonderful summary, and I, I know just just briefly because I know we're we're, we're short in time. We're going to wrap up in a minute or two, but um, yeah, I, I just I couldn't agree more with you, Darren. I know for for me, like like as a, as an undergraduate doing philosophy and English literature, I had a really interesting exposure to philosophy of science through a module that I took in my third year, which really kind of exploded the whole idea of thinking like like you said and like actually being able to approach scientific paradigms from my humanities perspective through the kind of lens of philosophy was so interesting and so valuable um so yeah just just think it's it's so interesting to, to start them early um, and see see what the rewards are um shane would you like to finish up just with any sort of closing comments on either that question or any anything in general you wanted to say yeah I'll, ma I'll make two comments uh if howard lenan wants to email me i'll happily provide him with uh, detailed papers on on uh, waterboarding um but the uh uh, Senate torture report showed that uh, they gained precisely, quote, no useful information despite 196 sessions in uh, of waterboarding in, in uh, one individual. Uh, just on the, the more, uh, on the other question of interdisciplinarity, I, I think one place that we can make this work actually is, is uh, in taking risks with the undergraduate curriculum. I think there should be space uh, uh, in people's teaching uh, to go beyond the kind of normal kinds of things that we think we have to do uh, and uh, to add areas that previously weren't uh, areas that uh, we might have considered, you know, so uh, it just I, I'll, I'll pick on English teaching for a moment um, or language teaching. Narrative is, is a key theme that ties together memory and the brain, um, uh, but narrative is at the core of, of uh, understanding language and, and uh, information transmission more generally in society. And there are ways to bring that together. Uh, Claire, was, who's gone now, has, has, was talking about uh, uh, climate change. Um, policy uh, is something that I think undergrads need to get an understanding of at a, at a much earlier stage. That's uh, how policy is made, what the policy pipeline is like, what the process that goes into making things happen uh, is, is really important uh, and reserving that as a kind of domain of knowledge for somebody who's postgraduate to my mind is, is, a, is, a, is a bad thing to do. Uh, it really, uh, the, the more generous we are with breaking interdisciplinary or breaking disciplinary silos uh, earlier, the better off I think we all are because uh, it will get us to a better set of answers uh, for the problems we face more quickly. I completely agree with that. And just to jump in really fast, Claire had mentioned earlier that um, morality is also subject to the same biases and social influences that so many other uh, systems are. And if we are dealing with, as Shane, you said, uh, it's not about you, it's actually about what others think of you. If we're dealing with issues of collective memory, and if it is indeed a two-way street between the traffic between the brain and the body and the world in and out, in and out, then I think it is best to start as early as possible, like even before university, like as early as possible so that this work translates into actual systems and actual policies instead of just something that we're talking about in an academic sphere, which is obviously uh, part of the work that you do so well. So, yeah. Perfect. I think we're just over time. So we'll unfortunately wrap up, though. I know this conversation could have gone on um, even without Claire for him. Um, 
for, for a good bit longer um, given the, the questions that were coming in um, and everything. So yeah, I just want to say thank you so much. A uh, big special thank you to um, my co-founder and co-host Fiona um, for being a wonderful collaborator through this whole process. Um, and thank you so much to the Long Room Hub, to the Postgrad uh, Community and Wellbeing Fund, um, to Eve Patton for introducing us and, and for asking questions. And especially most of all, I suppose, thank you to uh, Darren, to Claire and to Shane for joining us for such an interesting conversation today. Um, and we will be sending a follow-up email to attendees um, with some links. I know Darren was posting all of Shape ID links and we'll definitely have some follow-up um, materials that we can send on to you guys based off the conversation today. Um, but in the meantime, you can feel free to get in touch with myself or uh, Fiona. You can find us probably without too much difficulty um, <laughs> on a variety of Trinity websites and you have the emails as well. So feel free to get in touch and thank Absolutely. you so much um, to, our, um, yeah, to, our, to our amazing guests. Thank you so much, guys. And just a quick piggyback. We are going to be doing this again. Um, so please, please stay tuned for further collaborations and further discussions. Thank you. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.